everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of The Home Hour. This is the show where we talk about your family, food, your household, and basically everything that happens inside your four walls. I'm Megan Francis, your host and the creator of The Happiest Home Blog. We've got a great show coming up today. A little bit later, we're going to be talking with Sarah Mazes, who is a children's book author. Um, her three children's books are On My Way to the Bath, On My Way to Bed, and On My Way to School. They're really cute and fun to read, and uh, Sarah was a fantastic guest, so you're going to really enjoy that. But first, I want to give you a little glimpse at what's going on in my house right now. So this week, it's really starting to feel like fall here in Michigan. The temperatures have been nice during the day, and it's sunny, but it, when we go to bed at night and when we wake up in the morning, it is definitely crisp, and it just has that fall feeling, and you can really tell it is officially on its way. So I've really been focusing on getting my meal plan back on track this week. You know, in the summer, I shared over the summer that I don't cook a whole lot, and um, it's a lot of grilling and really easy stuff, and I'm just getting back in that cooking frame of mind now. So um, so that is kind of what I've been doing all week, actually spending a lot of time in the kitchen. But I want to talk a little bit about a story that came out a couple of weeks ago now, I guess the week before last, that got a lot of attention um, about how family dinners are overrated and basically impossible for average people to pull off and that we shouldn't be putting so much focus on a home-cooked family meal. And I actually did respond to that both on my own blog and on the Huffington Post, and I will link to both of those articles in the show notes, which will be at thehappiesthome.com slash episode 36. But I, you know, the one I wrote from my blog was basically how I started like to love cooking, um, <clears throat> how I went from being someone who did not who literally did not know how to make anything besides macaroni and cheese and scrambled eggs. Um, as a married woman with kids, this was just in my 20s, to now having a fairly decent repertoire of meals I can pull off without needing a recipe. I'm a confident cook. I'm not a, the best cook. Um, I'm not even a great cook. In fact, I might not even be a good cook. But I can cook stuff that my kids will eat and my family will enjoy. And that's what matters. And I, I feel like we really need to demystify this whole situation of getting the meal on the table. So in my uh, blog post for The Happiest Home, I just wrote about the process of kind of, you know, if you've been listening to the show since the beginning, um, what I called then the kitchen hour, which was, you know, my idea of time spent in the kitchen, just puttering around, getting used to the kitchen, getting that familiarity and that confidence with just simple techniques that sometimes take a while to learn and then building on from there. And how the more I did that, the more it made me want to be in the kitchen, which then made me better at cooking. It's this great cycle. And the story for the Huffington Post was more about how hard we make this on ourselves um, because we expect, you know, in the, art, in the uh, Slate article, which was based on a study from a university, I think the University of North Carolina or um, a, a university in North Carolina, that... Um, we have this foodie ideal of what it means to cook dinner. So it's not enough for it to be reasonably healthy. It has to be completely whole and pure and clean. And it can't just be, you know, mostly homemade. It has to be completely from scratch. And I think that especially when you're starting out or when you have small children at home, that's such an obstacle for most of us. It's just not realistic. And so I wrote there about how, <clears throat> to me, it's, you know, what I grew up eating were very basic American meals. You know, you had a slab of meat, you had potatoes or rice, and you had a vegetable and usually a slice of bread and butter. And they were good meals and they were wholesome meals. And, and we ate them every night without fail. Um, we never ate out when I was a kid. But my mom also was not above using a packet, you know, of ranch, of the ranch seasoning to make ranch dressing or 
uh, you know, using, she even used potato buds, which I'll never use, but <laughs> that's just my own personal snobbery. I don't make a lot of mashed potatoes either. Um, but just the, the shortcuts she felt like she was able to rely on and still put a healthy meal on the table. Whereas now we sort of look at that as cheating or not good enough or inferior. But what ends up happening is we get ourselves these high standards that are too high to reach every single day. And then when we, you know, when we don't follow through or we don't have enough time or we don't have the ingredients we need, we hit the drive-through or we go out to eat. It's just not a sustainable way of looking at it. And so, um, I want to share my meal plan for this week. This is a fairly standard meal plan. Um, Sometimes, I mean, it's a little less heavy on the slab of meat uh, because I do that a lot, especially in the winter when I want to use the stove a lot or the oven a lot. And this week I just didn't really want to use the oven as much. But this is a pretty typical type of weekly meal plan that I would have. So Monday we had pork uh, tenderloin, potatoes and Brussels sprouts. Tuesday, ziti, baked ziti. Uh, Wednesday was black bean tacos. And also I had overplanned a little bit for Monday and Tuesday. So there was a lot of... Um, leftovers going on yesterday. Thursday, so that's tonight, we'll have quiche. And tomorrow we'll probably get pizza. Maybe we'll make pizza if we're feeling particularly um, you know, motivated. And probably more leftovers because there's still some left. And the quiche, there's usually a couple slices left the next day. So if you really break this down, um, first of all, the pork that I we had on Monday was actually pre-marinated. I usually marinate it myself because it doesn't take very long. But I had gone to the grocery store and they were having this crazy deal <laughs> Um, like buy two, get three free on the marinade, the pre-marinated pork tenderloin. So I ended up getting those. Uh, potatoes were just baked potatoes. So just scrub them and toss them in the oven. And Brussels sprouts, which take about 40, you know, 35 minutes to roast, something like that, depending on how big they are and how brown you want them. So this was not a hard meal to put together. The only time it really took was preparation time and then hanging around the kitchen time just to make sure you know, that I kept an eye on the temperature, but there wasn't a lot of prep. This is an, this is something where you pull the pork out, even if you're seasoning it yourself, you pull it out of the package, you toss it on a cookie sheet, you stick it in the oven, it cooks. It's not a big deal. Um, Tuesday, ziti. So that was, um, I made a ground beef and sausage ziti. Uh, I also made one that was vegetarian because one of my sons just didn't want the, the ones with meat in it. This is something, again, where it feels like it's taking a long time, but most of that time is waiting time. So besides, you know, boiling the pasta water and browning the meat and the garlic and onions and things like that and making the sauce, which is literally just opening some cans of tomato, um, tomato sauce and dumping it in with the meat and the spices, and then you just kind of mix it all together. And I don't even make lasagna because I always screw up the layers on lasagna and end up with too much sauce at the end or not enough sauce to cover the, the noodles. I don't know. I just can't get it right. So I make ziti because it really doesn't matter if you screw the layers up. All that really matters is that you have enough sauce to cover at the end. And if you have to, you can just kind of mix it up a little bit. <laughs> and I use cottage cheese instead of ricotta because I always have it on hand and my kids like it better. So, I mean, there's just, my point is that there's just a lot of ways to play with these different things. Um, the quiche I'm making tonight, I'm going to use some pre, um, some pre-made pie crusts. I could make my own, but Part of the point for me of making quiche is that it's a really quick dinner on nights when we have other things going on. So my son has uh, baseball practice tonight. So we're doing quiche. They all love quiche and it's healthy and it's cheap. It's, eggs are such a great cheap source of protein. So, and black bean tacos take me about 10 minutes to make, if that. I mean, maybe it takes five minutes to make the black beans. It's very, very quick. 
I think that what I'm trying to get at here is that when we make something and we put on this pedestal, this family dinner idea, um, and we make it so complicated and hard, it's no wonder that we have a hard time pulling it off. And then you've got articles calling it uh, tyranny, <laughs> the tyranny of the family dinner, which I thought was a little bit of a strong word to use. But maybe with a shift of the way that we approach dinner and the way that we approach our own role in dinner, it doesn't have to always be all about mom getting, you know, every piece of dinner on the table every single night. And it doesn't have to be a brand new recipe you've never heard of every single night. And, you know, it doesn't have to feature exotic ingredients. It doesn't have to be ethnic food every night. It doesn't have to be completely home, you know, homegrown from eggs you gathered yourself from your backyard chicken coop. I mean... I think if we just give ourselves a little break, we can actually do this. And then you can build on. Then you can start trying the recipes you've never tried before and get more comfortable with more difficult um, techniques and maybe try some different ways of eating. If you want to try uh, a vegetarian or a no-dairy uh, meals, then you know once you're kind of comfortable with the basics, you can branch out. But I feel like, and I know this is true for me when I was a young mom and just kind of trying to learn this stuff on my own, Everything was so overwhelming, um, and I made it way harder on myself than it had to be. So I just wanted to talk about that this week because I think it's really important. I will move on now. One more quick thing before we talk with Sarah Mazes. Um, I Maybe you might have heard me talking last spring about my book, Beyond Baby, which was a 40-week um, workbook-style activity book almost that brought you through activities that would help you kind of tap into your interests and goals and dreams outside of motherhood. And the whole idea is it's for people who feel, you know, regardless of what stage your kids are, because this happens at a different time for everyone, you just feel like you're moving out of that baby phase where you're able to kind of, you know, not be so absorbed in the new baby motherhood stuff. And maybe you can start spending some time on yourself and doing some things that you've put on the back burner. So right now we are doing a Beyond Baby Boot Camp. We are five, four days in today, um, and you can still join. It's just a 30-day free activity. Um, you just sign up at beyondbaby.net, and you will get the activities right in your inbox. There's also a Facebook group where we're talking about it, and the activities are really simple and fun. Like today, um, I challenged everyone to clean out one small space in their house. So I used my spice drawer as an example of a small space that had gotten really out of control, hardly took me any time to put it back together. And now it's that much easier to find things that I need. So that was the challenge for today. There was another challenge about cleaning out your purse. And yesterday was a more of a marriage related one. So check it out. It's at beyondbaby.net. Again, it's totally free. It's 30 days of activities and discussions. And it's been really fun so far. I've had a great response to it. Okay, let's move on to our interview today with Sarah Mazes. Sarah, who you can find online at sarahmazes.com. That's Mazes with an I, so S-A-R-A-H-M-A-I-Z-E-S.com, uh, is the author of three children's books, On My Way to School, On My Way to Bed, and On My Way to the Bath. We have two of them, and my daughter loves them. Um, they're really cute. They feature a, a little girl named Livy who likes to stall on her way to anything she's supposed to be doing. She, she has very creative stalling habits. And, uh, I, I really recognized my kids, 
in different ways in this character and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, Sarah talks about her old life or her old work life at least in children's media and entertainment then working for Mattel for a while and then ending up staying home with her three kids and trying to figure out what she was going to do next, which for a little while involved writing sketch comedy and um, stand-up com and doing stand-up comedy. And then she sort of landed somehow in this role as a children's book author. So she gives some great advice for people who want to write children's books. And um, she also just has a really interesting viewpoint, like sort of this behind the scenes view of what that life is like and also what the life what it's like behind the scenes at these children's media companies which I think was really interesting she's hilarious and it was a really great interview and I know you're going to enjoy it so here we go hey Sarah glad to have you on the show Oh, so happy to be on the show. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm great. Uh, it is lovely weather here today. My husband calls this California weather, but I have to say, um, probably not the area of California that you're in. You're in LA, right? It's, I'm in LA. First of all, you don't want LA weather right now because <laughs> it is a thousand degrees outside. And I'm convinced it's earthquake weather. We are oh, going to have an earthquake tonight. I know oh, it. Oh, no. Well, I, I hope know that, it. that does not come. Does that happen? Is, is there earthquake weather? People say it's not real, but it is. Every September, <laughs> yeah. it gets really, really hot. And whenever we have these heat waves, we have an earthquake. Every time. I don't know why people won't just go, okay, there's earthquake weather. Right. Because it's for sure there's earthquake weather. Interesting. I had never yeah. heard of that. But then I don't, we're live in in a, it. I don't live in a place where it ever gets to 1,000 degrees. And, and you also don't live in a place that has earthquakes, so you're very lucky. You know what? You're totally right. That's the good thing about living in Michigan. It's very cold during the winter, but there are really the natural disaster level here is quite low. So. I, I I think I'm moving to Michigan because last <laughs> night before bed, you know what I did? I showed my kids how to duck and cover in the in the triangle of life. Oh my gosh, I don't think I can handle that. That's what I did, and they're looking at me the same. Wait, mom, why are we doing this? I said because you know I think there's going to be an earthquake tonight. Like, right. What? What? <laughs> I said, no, not a big one. Just, you know, we've had just tons of earthquakes. It's fine. I just, we're doing a drill. We're doing a drill. Just, you know, let me see. Okay, quick, earthquake, do it. And they're like, I freaked my kids out. <laughs> just a big enough earthquake to get their attention. <laughs> yes. Just yes. in case it rattles them out of bed because right. the last one was big enough to rattle them out of bed. I wouldn't even know what to do. I mean, that, I have to feel like someone who, and, and you didn't, you came from New York, right? So you right. Yeah, grow from up Philadelphia in originally. California. So when you first felt your first earthquake, what did you even think? I felt like my insides wanted to run outside of my skin. I thought I was going to just, I was so sick and so terrified. I still am traumatized from my first earthquake and it was 14 years ago. Wow. I still am the tiniest little rattle of any piece of furniture. And it just, the, the idea of the earth moving, moving. under you, the thing, <laughs> your foundation, right. your very natural foundation is moving right yes terrifying oh i can imagine and i and to have to play it cool in front of three kids because you don't want them to grow up freaked out with your own issues so each time i'm like yeah it's fine it's all good and then they leave the room and i'm like oh my god but you know to them this will be normal i mean it it probably is never normal but it'll be like one of those things that like for me, growing up with six feet of snow on the ground was normal, <laughs> you know? And you yeah. try to explain it to people who are transplants, and no matter what, they just, no matter how long they live there, if they didn't grow up with it, it's really hard to get used to that. It is. 
It is. I mean, and I, I, I'm hoping that the fact that it is sort of normal to them will um, make them immune to it, freaking them out the way it freaks me out. But <laughs> right. I don't like it. I, I don't like it. And every time it happens, I go, I'm moving. I'm moving home. Yeah. I'm moving. I'm done. I'm done. Right, Kitty? Kitty wants to be done also. Oh, what's your kitty's name? His name is Atticus Emerson, Grand Duke of Hampster Chestershire. <laughs> what, do you, what do you call him? What does he come to? Addy. Addy, okay. He doesn't that makes come sense. to anything. It's a cat. <laughs> he comes true. when you shake. He comes, his name to him shake a tree is peg. the sound of the shaking bag of food. Yep, yep. yep. It's, it's sort of like the mermaid in Splash. You know, her name is actually more of a sound effect. That's oh, right. Atticus's oh, name. I kind of forgotten about that movie. I, I spent a whole summer watching that movie on uh, when it was on HBO. It was so good. I think I watched it every day for an entire summer. <laughs> I, I I want my kids to. I want to share that with my kids for yeah. sure. Yeah, there's for so sure. many good ones. There's so many good movies from the '80s, especially. Well, that was kind of when I was growing up. So I think of the eight. Like when we got HBO, that was a huge deal, and I spent oh, a yeah. lot of time sitting in. I spent a lot of time with my television. Let's just put it that way. I spent so much time. I spent my entire youth glued to the Muppets. I'm not kidding you. I watched the Muppets every day. It used to be, I think it was on like 7 p.m. or something like that. I think I watched every Yeah. Well, I remember when it was on Sunday nights, but I don't remember when it was on like regularly. There was a time where it was, uh, It was. I guess, you know, they sold the, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the, 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 the syndication. Syndicate, thank yeah. you, syndication. And it was on every night at 7 o'clock. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's funny. I wrote this – I wrote a post last year about how my son Isaac, who is a freshman now, um, basically spent – you know A freshman first, in, in – high school. Oh, my God. Spent like, a, spent like a six weeks of the summer just gorging on TV and how – like I really had this sort of – parental struggle with that because part of me thought, well, it's my duty as a mom to limit screen time as everyone likes to call it now, which, um, and to not let him watch TV and it's melting his brain and it's better things he could be doing and he should be outside, you know, running around. But although he's a little old to be like running around with his friends or riding a bike, I mean, it's just not, (laughs) but I thought, gosh, you know, when I think back to, um, when I was, you know, kind of in that middle schoolish age, I watched a lot of TV and I have to say, I'm glad I did. I have so much cultural sort of currency from that time. And yeah. I remember things that other people remember. And I re- and very funny lines. Like there are things that really shaped my sense of humor and my sense of, you know, the culture around me. And so I don't regret the time I, wa- I spent watching TV. I don't so either. It's I let so him. Funny you say, it's so funny you say that because I don't regret it either. And people say, I hear people talk about screen time. And I think, you know what? My parents parked me in front of a TV from probably the moment we ever first got it, from the moment of birth, they brought me home. Right. They parked me in front of a TV, and I kid you not, this came up at dinner one night. My mom said, yeah, you used to watch Static. And I looked at her, <laughs> and I said, why on earth would you put me in front of Static? She goes, well, you were watching. I said, right. really? Like that? That I mean, the, the mothering skills of the previous generation are so suspect. But then I turn around and I say to my kids, I'm fine. I'm fine. I watch tons of TV. I'm fine. Wouldn't you want to be just like this? Oh, that's so funny. It reminds me, I remember a few years ago, and this is a little off topic, but it kind of speaks to this. Um, Have you ever watched the show Will and Grace? Yes. Oh my yes. God. I loved that show. So I was watching and I didn't, I didn't watch it all the time, but it was on, you know, cause it was on for a while there. It was like reruns all day long. You could basically catch an episode of Will and Grace 
no matter when you turn the television on. <laughs> and it was one where uh, Will wanted to go like hiking and, and biking. And they, well, he had this whole thing planned, like this weekend of, of things that they were going to do. And Grace just said at some point, she said, I don't do stuff. <laughs> she's like, I'm not the kind of person who does stuff. And that line really stuck with me because I thought, you know, when I was a kid, I was a reader and a talker and a watcher, but I wasn't as much of like a, I mean, I love to go outside, but I would go outside and like, look at the flowers, talk to myself, you know, Right. <laughs> then I'd come home and write a poem about it. But I was never that kid who was super... Um, grubby in the dirt, you know, really roughhousing, jumping out of trees. I just wasn't that kid. And I think sometimes, you know, we have this idea of what's good parenting and we expect kids to be a certain way and forget that there's always been the dreamy kids. There's always been the ones who watch. There's always been the ones who kind of lurk around in the background taking notes. That's And then we grow up into those people. Yeah. You know? I so, think you're so spot on. So spot on. It's true. So you it's, were absorbing, and and obviously that led to your career, um, which we can talk about a little bit. But you know, before what you do now, but all of those jokes and the timing, you know, and the and what it takes to make a joke work, and the sensibility, you really do need to be immersed in it. My mother was obsessed with Monty Python, mm-hmm. so that was the only adult show I was. Well, that and Upstairs, Downstairs. That <laughs> and, you know, I was raised on Monty Python. And Jim Henson, like, how warped is that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, but that's my sense of humor. Right. And it's because that's what we begin, that's where we, that's where I made sense of, you know, what's this joke about? Why is it funny? And it, it just, that, that's where it all came from. I just, yeah. we, we are what we watch. Yep, and yeah, we're right. not doing, but we're absorbing. You're right. And, and I think for me, the question was, you know, if you're going to sit around and watch hours of television, Let's just make sure it's good TV. I would rather have it be a little on the racy side and good and funny and smart than something dumbed down for his age. Yes. You know, so I let him watch, you know, Arrested Development and, uh, well, he gorged on that and then he moved on. (laughs) He actually watched, I think, all of those episodes like three times and he knows all, he knows all of the lines. It's just, it's so, it's so him. It just works. It's, it, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it really does. You have to be something that is. It's got to be something intelligent, something funny, something they're going to enjoy. And it does shape them. Mm-hmm. And I, I would so much rather them watch something wildly inappropriate that's hilarious and well-written than <laughs> right. something that's age-appropriate and ridiculous. Because You're so right. Yeah. I, have no, I have no patience for ridiculous. I don't either. And that's why there are certain channels that um, – and, and there's always quality stuff on any channel. But there are certain ch- turn times of day where I won't allow the kids to turn on you know, the, the kid channels. Because yes. it's the it's like the the spoon fed time of day where kids are just sitting around sort of mindlessly taking in really lame shows. Yes. <laughs> like no, put on the office or something. I don't know. So right, and I don't want them to think that that's what funny is. Right, that's not funny. Right, I right. They were going to do that. Are you kidding me? So let's talk a little bit about you know now that we've like set the stage that we both watched a lot of television growing up. <laughs> So if you want to be a writer, watch a lot of TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's what we've learned from this. Episode. It's been great talking to you. But you you started out in children's entertainment. Um, so talk a little bit about that, and then we can kind of fast forward to where what you're doing now and what's next. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, my first job out of school, and I, I find it's funny because I look back at this and I, I feel so incredibly fortunate that I had this opportunity, 
And it was one of those things where I didn't even know that the opportunity existed. It was, you know, when you have a liberal arts degree, you, you don't know what your options are. It's not like somebody's going to say, oh, you can go into accounting or you can be a lawyer or um, you don't know what your options are. And people just say, oh, liberal arts. Oh, that's nice. You can read and write. And But I fell into this job, literally fell into this job working as an assistant to a literary agent. And his name was Sheldon Fogelman. And he was the literary agent to all of the absolute best children illustrators that we worked with. Maurice Marshall, may he rest in peace. Oh my God, brilliant man. Rosemary Wells, Stephen Kellogg. We worked with just these amazing people. And um, I realized how much I loved kids' entertainment. And like I said, it sort of dovetailed. I know we kind of talked about this before the show, but that. Um, how all the pieces, all the things of who you are and what you like all kind of come together until they eventually form this unique person who you can't imagine them doing anything else. This is, of course, what they do. And But kids' entertainment and being able to laugh and have fun and all came from this place of growing up with the Muppets and Monty Python and it just seemed like a natural segue to work with children's book authors. Mm-hmm. And find a way to, I connected with that, with relating to kids. It was just something that I really, really enjoyed. So I went from there to work for the William Morris Agency, where um, I worked with some comedians. I was an assistant at this point, but got to work on some amazing books with um, Jerry Seinfeld and Paul Reiser and mm-hmm. um, just people who I was like bowing down to the ground <laughs> of because they were so hilarious. And so again, that component of I always loved anything that made me laugh, comedy, all of those things just were the things that I tend to seek out. And I ultimately launched the kids' entertainment department at the William Morris Agency. I was the only person basically handling entertainment for kids and books. And we had some other people then who went into books to, to film and to TV. And um, one of my first children's book deals with Dave Pilkey was for his Captain Underpants series. And um, it just was this love of... I loved working with these amazingly hilarious, funny people with such smart points of view. They were just, they just were able to consolidate life into these little snippets. And it was funny and great and realistic. And anyway, so I worked there for a while. Then I went from there to head um, animation for a development, head development, not head animation, head development for an animation studio and got to work on, um, ironically, uh, coincidentally, I should say, George and Martha, which was over at HBO, which was a James Marshall project. He had since passed away. Um, Maggie and the Ferocious Beast and tons of these other amazing properties, which it was just wonderful. And I worked there for a while and left and went went to, where did I go from there? I went to Mattel and I worked on kids entertainment based on their brand. So Barbie movies and stuff like that. So by that point, I had had my first daughter who I used to bring to work with me and she used to go to the Mattel Child Care Center, which was so amazing. I loved having her right downstairs and they had this amazing facility. As you can imagine, like every toy these kids could ever want. And they were so (laughs) immersed in, in making sure that our kids were well taken care of and were being educated and stimulated. And it was wonderful. Um, but I got pregnant with my twins and I just, I, I left work after that. Mm. And, 
So I took a break and I was home with all three of my kids. And after a year of being home with my kids, I said, I can't do this anymore. I need a break. Right. <laughs> Somebody send me to work because <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do this anymore. Um, and I was just looking for something to move outside of myself. And I was actually at this weird place where my oldest daughter had been, we were already probably like a year into having therapy for her for, um, being, she had been diagnosed with very mild Asperger's syndrome, okay. but early intervention, this, that's a whole other conversation about right. just getting into that. But between that, taking care of my twins, my marriage was ending. Um, I was separated and I just needed to do something, something. I, I just, I felt like I had lost my life. I had lost who I was. I didn't even know. There was just nothing in there for me. And I was feeling like I wasn't finding joy. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to find something that felt totally different. That would be something I would love. I could be excited about. And I started taking improv classes. And just from there, it was just, you become very addicted to the laughter and the freedom and the support. And it's wonderful. It was probably the single best life altering event other than the birth of my children that ever happened to me. It was just amazing. You really do emerge from the other side with a different point of view, how you look at everything, how it makes you laugh. It's, it changed everything. So I just started taking these improv classes, did improv for a while, then decided I'm not really great at improv. It's really (laughs) fun, but I'm not. You're not going to make a career out of it. I'm not making a career out of it. Let me try something else. And I started doing sketch comedy and taking classes in that and was eventually invited into their sketch comedy company. And that I loved being able to take just one moment, one incident, something funny and turn it into a sketch, this three minute sketch. And it was so fun. It was probably my favorite form of writing, my absolute favorite form of writing and did that. And at the same time then decided, okay, I want a new challenge. Now what do I try? And I tried stand up comedy and I, fell in love with that. And so I had all three of these pieces and, and, um, the, the standup comedy was great, but I got to a point where if I wasn't going to start traveling, I just wasn't going to be able to make a living from it. When you have three little kids at home and you are at this point, I think it's when, about when we got separated, my ex-husband and I, I just, I needed to be home. So that just wasn't an option. And that's when I started writing because I did, and I started blogging, which is so funny because it feels like that was the, just the natural transition. Right. You are just, you're looking for a place to get all of these little life observations out and to make them short and quippy and fun. And it's the comedy just dovetailed so well with that. And it just, and motherhood, there's just, it could, it, could there be more, more fertile terrain? I don't right. think there can be. Right. And right. so you just, I wrote down, it's so nice because I look back now and I feel like there are so many moments of my kid's childhood, things I never remember that I wrote down. I might not have written a whole blog post about it. It could still be a draft tucked away inside right. of my blog, but the moments are just, I, I have them there. And um, it's so funny because now I actually go back to my blog and I look up all those old moments and use them as inspiration for when I'm writing my kids' books. Yeah. Because I they rem- I remember it takes me back and it, those little moments I just those are the things that I find so funny. 
Did that answer? Did I just yeah, ramp no, up? No, it's fine. I, <laughs> I don't even know where I went from there. Well, I was going to ask you, how long ago did you start blogging? And how long ago did you make the shift from sort of sketch writing to writing books? Um, I made this, uh, well, I probably started blogging in 2007. Okay. Um, that's when I launched my blog, my first blog, the okay. mommy light online, uh, which is now over at sarahmazes.com. Um, but so I started doing that then. Then when I started writing, I actually was writing humor and I started doing blog posts for other outlets. And, um, a couple of years later I had a gig with I had a book coming out, actually. I wrote a book called Got Milf, The Modern Mom's Guide to Feeling Fabulous, Looking Great, and Rocking a Minivan, oh, fun. which was a humor book. But I, I'm convinced that uh, I think there's a lot of people out there who are concerned it might be porn or have some <laughs> sort of like milky Kama Sutra in, right. inside it. And it does it. It's pure humor. I mean, it's meant to be um, the preppy handbook for right. moms. You know, it's, a, it's a joke because, you know, because how milfy do we all feel? Not so much. Not so much. But um, so my book came out actually in 2011. Okay. And that's when I started writing for additional outlets. So that's when I really started blowing up the blogging thing and um, writing for lots of different outlets, moved beyond my own blog. Um, and I guess most of that happened after I toned down stand-up comedy stuff because it was so time consuming to yeah. also stand up comedian, even, even to just do it here in town. It's, you get home at one in the morning and then you're up at seven to feed your kids breakfast and go to school. And it's just, it's a horrible living. I don't know how anyone does it. And I don't know how anyone who's ever been an executive on any level or anybody who could be like a Jewish American princess, like I am and be a stand up comedian. I don't know how Sarah Silverman does it. Because the green rooms are so disgusting. The people, it's like the pizza's nasty. You're like eating it. I'm sitting there going, this isn't very comfortable. I want my expense account again from William Morris. This just won't do. Maybe you have to have, maybe you have to get to a certain level of success where you have like a person who runs around behind you. Right. Doing things for you. Yes. She wants mints in her dressing room. Yeah. I I wasn't there. I wasn't even close to there. Yeah. But so I started writing my first book, 2011, and then um, I'm trying to think the next year my first kid's book came out. So I guess 2011, I hadn't really thought about it, but 2011 is when I really dug my heels in with publishing. So let me, let me just um, stop you right there because I know as an author myself um, it, and a lot of authors that I've talked to have a difficult time transitioning from one kind of, you know, writing to another because they feel like they've been pigeonholed or they only really know, like I, at this point, only really know how to pitch nonfiction parenting books. Now I could figure it out, <laughs> but you get in a certain, you know, you get in a certain kind of rhythm or routine or you have contacts in a certain area or whatever it is. And you, it's hard to imagine yourself, you know, we all have this idea now of this personal brand. It's not enough that we're just writers. We, we're like these niche writers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, and it and so especially curious. as bloggers, it's because. Yeah. Oh, as bloggers. And we've been told that that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, you know, pick something and stick with it. And, and so it's so interesting to me to hear that you went from writing humor that even though it was just humor, people took it to be very racy. And within like a year from then, we're writing children's books. I mean, how did you make that transition? I, that, and it's funny because I could not use, and I, I learned a very, very valuable lesson, which is if you're going to do something, make sure it's something you can use to help sell your next project. Right. Which is writing a book about MILFs does not sell children's books. <laughs> just, you know. Gosh, I can't figure out why. I don't, you know, it's, it just, it, so all the work I did, like I'd hired a publicist when the book came out and I mean, we got great reviews. Like it was in 
Glamour and Marie Claire and in I mean we had such I I had such great reviews and I thought oh my god this is going to be wonderful and then I had this children's book idea and I couldn't use anything yep. that I had worked so hard for with my adult humor books because that was not going if anything it was going to work against me in the children's book area right um, that people would think oh this isn't somebody we should be buying a children's book from so you have to be pure and chaste <laughs> yeah exactly you know people with children never have sex you know that's Obviously. that's just disgusting right. and, um but so I had to just I I just didn't use it I started from scratch and so it was like starting from ground zero all over again and it was hard it was very hard to make the transition the the what made it possible for me was because I had always been very passionate about kids entertainment and I did have a background in children's publishing. So I think that it, not that it made it easier to publish a book because it doesn't. And it's still, it's, it's getting editors to see you as a children's book writer Mm -hmm. is so hard, especially when they've seen you as an agent. So they see you as the shark, not the creative. Right. Um, And they're not loving you for that. And, you know, this is not so, because it's a very, writing kids books is a very specific thing. It is, yeah. a thing is not the word. I was looking for a better word and I said <laughs> it really slowly, but thinking that the other word would come to me. Well, and, it, and it's a very, you know, it's kind of one of those things where when you go to the children's section, I mean, and I'm saying this as someone, you know, I'm not an expert, um, but just as a casual buyer of children's books. When mm-hmm. you go to the children's sections, it feels like a very small number of names dominate. Yes. Because, so, you know, because the books are big. Yeah. <laughs> and they're always laid out in a certain way. Like, you know what I mean? They're always, they're propped up and they take up, you know, five books takes up the whole table. And it's just like, there's not enough physical space almost. There isn't. It's very hard to break through. It's very easy to end up mid-list. And I think that the hardest thing about children's publishing, or I, I would have to say the hardest thing about um, breaking into it is there's so many people who want to, who do, it. Want to do it. I mean, I, I used to get to a place where I couldn't even tell people what I did at cocktail parties because everyone has a children's book. And I, I, there's one message I could get out there is it's so much harder to write one of these things than you would think. And, you know, people like look at a Jackson Pollock and they think my, my two-year-old could do that. My three- yes, they could do something that is similar to it, but the composition of it and the way that it is created is very intentional. And it's, it's very, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot more work than people say. I want, I hesitate to say it's so hard. Cause that's like saying no one else can do, can do it. And like, I'm, I'm something special cause I can do it. I'm not something special cause I can do it. What makes the difference is I understand how hard it is. Yes. And I invest the time into each manuscript. I spend months writing something that's 500 words months. Yeah. I kid you not. <laughs> well, and, it's, I, and, and you have the understanding <laughs> of the, of the industry, which makes a big difference. I mean, you're going to understand just because of your background what the people on the other side of the table are thinking when they see your proposal. And not everybody has that, you know. <laughs> and so, you can't yeah. even with a kids book, you don't even go in and pitch like you know with nonfiction, you can go in and pitch with a proposal. Right. But with a kids book, you you 
submit the book. You write the whole thing. You well, write I, the- I kind of, oh, so let me ask, and then this is so funny that you're saying this because I think I'm one of the only writers I know who's never desired to write a children's book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would, so I'll never ask you for advice. I promise. Um, you always ask me for And advice. I love, I mean, I love reading children's literature. I still sometimes will just go back and read kids books just because I like, like right now I'm rereading all the Trixie Belden books. I don't know if you were familiar with those oh. from like the forties and fifties. They're kind of like Nancy Drew, but better, I think. But anyway, I read it for fun and I still do. It's like I would rather read a kid's book often than read adult fiction, but I just have never had any desire to write it. So I've never really delved into the ins and outs. But one thing I did think about while I was looking at your book thinking or one of your books thinking, so you you write the text and then you find an illustrator or you find an illustrator and then you write the text. I mean, I feel like the text is so affected by the illustrations or is it the other way around? The, you know what? It's the other way around. The illustration is, in fact, you usually, the story is created first, unless you are an illustrator. There are people, and I bow down to them, who illustrate and write. Like people like David Wiesner, like their economy of words. I mean, he has like, what, six words in each book. I mean, it's just... Yeah. But his illustrations are so powerful. David Shannon is another. David Shannon. Oh my God, I yeah. love David Shannon. But it, again, I, it's like three words on a page. So, but at the <laughs> end, the illustration don't you feel drives like you've the had book. a satisfying. You've read a satisfying story. Absolutely. And the, the, the pictures are so words, integral. Yeah, if yeah. you didn't have those words at each point directing you and and um, emphasizing what that moment is about it wouldn't be the same. Right. And that's why he is so effective. I mean, I think no David is just one of the most brilliant one of the most brilliant picture books to come out of sort of this this era. Um another great series I absolutely absolutely love is Big Dog and Little Dog by Dave Pilkey, which is you know, everybody knows him for Captain Underpants, but his board books, oh my god, his picture books are genius. I feel like I, you it's should just, know that one. It, it's you oh, got to check it out. It's is so it like great. is it kind of older? Oh yeah. It's so like totally one of those older. beginner books. Like I'm kind of picturing it in my yes, head. It's, it's a board book, and it's a big dog and a little dog, and they're best friends. Is and this it the is, Go Dog Go guy? Was there? Uh, no, no. Okay, no. <laughs> okay, because I had a book when I was, but I think I also had Big Dog Little Dog and a book called Go Dog Go, which was like all these. Go Dog Go was like a a Doctor Seussian. It was. Written, it was um, published like one of those series. Right. Okay. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Anyway, sorry, um, go on. <laughs> but that's okay. No, but it just, there that that economy of words and created, balanced with this beautiful illustration, I think is really what makes it. Um, but with a lot of other books, what happens is that you submit your manuscript and you are paired with an illustrator down the road. That is not what I did with my books. But that was only because, and mine was a weird situation in that, you know, I don't think there are a lot of people out there that are writing kids' books who have also been children's book agents and right. worked with authors and illustrators. And so my illustrator, Michael Paraskevis, I've known him for 20 years. We've been very good friends. I was friendly with his, with his mom. And we, I actually, he was one of the first people I represented when I went into children's books. Oh, okay. So we've had this relationship for so long. And actually what had happened was when I wrote my first manuscript on my way to the bath, I almost didn't even show it to anyone. I just was so embarrassed and scared and feeling like I have no right trying to write one of these books written by these people who I had so much respect for. And 
And there's no way I'll be able to even remotely come close to doing something intelligent or decent. And I, I just, I was so embarrassed and shy about showing it, which was so weird for somebody who's been a stand-up comedian. Right. I'm like, you know, but I, I, this is the one thing I, I just have so much respect for these people who write these books. I just couldn't, I was embarrassed to show it. So I showed it to Mickey. He actually, his mother had passed away the year before and every book he had done, he had done with his mom. Oh, she wrote the text. Nice. He illustrated it. They had a hugely successful series on Nick Jr. called Maggie and the Ferocious Beasts. Yeah, I remember. And uh, we all love Maggie and the Ferocious Beasts. And um, his mother had passed away. And he was out here. And I'd written this manuscript. And we were having breakfast. And I said, I'd just written this thing. And would you just look at it and tell me if – I'd just look at it. Just as a friend, look at it and tell me if I'm just so – this is – I'm totally off base that I should just go back to stand-up comedy or just like get a day job working right. as a dental receptionist in a dentist's office. And not that there's anything wrong with that job because they're, they're very nice ladies. Um, but he took a look at it. He goes, I want to illustrate this. Wow. And I just, I was like teared up and I was so like, are you serious? Oh my God, you would illustrate this? Absolutely. And suddenly it was almost like, and you're going to think I'm so weird for saying this, but I could almost feel his mom, Betty, like putting the two of us together hmm. on this. And mm -hmm. it felt suddenly, and as the person who used to be his agent, I saw an opportunity for him to illustrate something. He's such a versatile illustrator. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a great way for him to do something new right. now that his mom has passed away. And you know what? Let's do it. Like, it just felt right. We just knew we were supposed to do this together. And I said, let's go ahead and do this. I would love to do it. Are you kidding me? He illustrated it and we sold it together. Wow. So it was a unique in that we went to publishers with it as a package. Um, but normally what would happen, because I have a couple manuscripts out right now, and they're just the text. Mm -hmm. And I have an idea in my head of what I want the artwork to look like, but the editors want to be able to put their own stamp on it. And I yeah. keep that to myself. Right. And, yes. You know, I, I bow down to their sensibilities and their ability to see a project. Um, I had a, an amazing editor at Bloomsbury. She's no longer there, but, um, Emily Easton, who's just, she just visually and wordsmith wise just has a real way of, um, making everything sing in harmony and just the smallest little changes, making them work. And it's, you just, you hope for that, finding an editor who will um, be able to bring out the most in your work and the most in the project. You know, and, and while you were, I, I totally agree. It's not, you know, it's, it's easy to get stuck in your vision, but you have to learn early when you're pitching stuff that there's parts you leave of your vision you leave out oh, yeah. <laughs> to leave oh, room right. for the editor to have their vision because that's exactly. their job. Oh my God. Uh, and I, I teach children's book writing also. Yeah. And I have your students will say, okay, so, you know, when I thought I'd draw the pictures or my cousin wants to yeah. do it, I go, no, 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 no. Yeah. But I mean, but I think it would be helpful to have it sort of, to have like, that preliminaries for you because otherwise, I mean, I would have a very hard time, I think, writing a picture book if I had no idea what the pictures would look like. That's what I would be, it'd be like looking at the blank page. But, you know? but that actually, but that's the thing is that when you, but you don't feel that way if you were to read like The Little Princess. That's true. By Frances Hodgson Burnett, you wouldn't go, oh, but I don't know what 
image to put in my head. Yeah, you're right. Maybe this is why I don't want to write children's books. (laughs) Yeah, maybe this is why. This actually, that was actually I'm not particularly visual either. So I think sometimes that, you know, that gets in the way, you know, of of just bringing it together in your head of how the whole package would look. I actually think that you don't need to be visual. What you need to be able to do is to be able to see how a story would play out. Mm, And you want to leave room for illustration without dictating what the illustration has to be. Um, So ideally, what you want to be able to do is submit a manuscript, is is to write something that inspires an illustrator, almost like you're creating this black and white line, this gorgeous picture, and they know how to fill in with the color and make it this beautiful image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you said you said you teach some classes. So for anyone who's listening that is, you know, interested in, in writing children's <laughs> books, I will put I a link. Classes. I will put a link to your, I'll put a link to your site anyway in the show notes, but I'll put a link specifically to wherever they have to go to find. Awesome. Yay. The classes there too. So, oh my <laughs> gosh, we're like cookies coming. Cookies children's books with scary yeah. places. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're kind of coming to the end, but I didn't I didn't get a chance yet to talk about Livy. So Livy is the star of your children's book series. She is she's much to very the chagrin funny. of her twin brother. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Livy is your actual child. You're one of your middle schoolers, your twins. She right? is. Yeah, she's in sixth grade right now. Okay. And so I'm just curious, what was it about Livy that made her inspire this series was it and I know you said she's a slow poke and that's obvious that's very evident in the book which we love in our house <laughs> they're very funny and they remind me of some of my kids quite about quite a lot um, I think every kid has that in them. she's a she's a procrast she's a staller she's a, she's a procrastinator she's a creative procrastinator right so she stalls her way through basically everything in creative imaginative ways it fought her for a book really spurred the idea. I was actually sitting in their bedroom trying to put them in bed. She must have been about six years old at the time, which is about how I envision Livy in the book series. Mm-hmm. And she just, we're sitting there. I'm like, Livy, come on. You've got to get into bed. Like, you've got to go to bed. Are you kidding me? And I see her scoot by on her back past a doorway, like literally in frame, like moves <laughs> in frame, out of frame. She goes, I am a slug. I move so slow. And I just, that's Livy. I mean, it it just, her, her way of looking at everything. She is very creative, very outspoken. Um, I always kind of imagine I might've been that kind of, kind of kid who really, really got that if I hadn't grown up in such like a strict household, but she, I never, what I was trying to do was to see it why is she doing this? Like she's not, I was trying to train myself. Why is she doing this? She wasn't doing it to make me angry. Right. She was, what was it that was making her not listen? Why wasn't she listening? And I realized that I was like watching her over several days after I had this idea and it was just, she was distracted. She wasn't not listening. Just everything was a shiny object and an opportunity to think of something funny. Yeah. And that's, and that's when I realized I was like, oh my God, this isn't a kid who's trying to be disobedient. She's not like actively, she's not, I hate, don't I sound like a writer? I'm like, she's like, (laughs) she's like, oh my God. And like, oh my God. Um, (laughs) But she wasn't actively trying to disobey me. She was just distracted. The world distracts 
this child. Yes. Whereas Ben, her twin brother, is very steadfast and just motivated and driven. And he sets his sight on something and that's it. Mm-hmm. But this story was about capturing the distraction, which I think every child has. It just, you're young and the world is filled with stimuli. Yes. And you're thinking, you know, you're on your way to bed and you see the cat. I'm looking at my cat right now. I would want to stop and pet him. Right. Hello, kitty. And then maybe do a little dance. He's like my new dance partner. La, 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 la. You know, and, and that's what I'd be thinking until my mother reminded me. Right. Hello. Yeah. We're trying to get in the tub here. Right. That's right. We're on our way to the tub. Oh, wait a second. That's the fort I built earlier. And, <laughs> yeah. and so it's, it's not a, it's meant to be more of a honoring. It's meant to honor her process. And the yeah. process I think Every kid has, and I do too. You just, you see something that's more fun. You get distracted. You're not trying to be nasty or disobedient. So that's, that's where it came from. And, um, and for many reasons, Ben unfortunately ended up being a baby in the book because otherwise I couldn't explain why he wasn't getting ready for bed at the same time. So I was like, Ben, you know what? You're going to be the baby brother and you're going to be really cute. And he was like, fine. Whatever. Yeah. And and, and I I think we captured Livy's older sister, Isabel, in the one where she's listening to music and looking at her sister like, oh my God. Yeah. She's a teenager. She's busy. She thinks of you. She's, she's, doesn't need a part of that. And, Mm -hmm. Um, so they all add something, but right. you know, you're writing, you have to filter it through one voice, but, um, yeah, Livy is a pistol. And we have, um, on my way to school and on my way to the bath and we love them both. What, there's one other on my, on way, my way to bed. To bed. Yes. Okay. So bed. they're all very fun. Um, and I, well, the other thing I've noticed is that if I'm reading, this one to my daughter, Clara, who's five, my son, Owen, who's almost nine will often kind of sidle into the room. And, you know, <laughs> like he's at the age where he reads himself Lord of the Rings. He doesn't really need me to read children's books to him and picture right. books, but he wants to listen. So it's, it's definitely, that. yeah, he'll kind of come in and like peek over my shoulder out of the corner of his eye and try to pretend, try to be all nonchalant, like he's not really paying attention. But I think that this is what I've heard from people. And yeah. it makes me happy because I intended for this, but to make fun of the mom character. Yeah. And I was trying to, I was trying to do that to like, to show, to like, to like, oh my God, um, <laughs> I was trying to show the frustration that builds on the mom side so that the kid could laugh at it mm-hmm. and sort of know as they're reading it that the mom was getting more and more frustrated right? and kind of laugh at it because it's a safe place to make fun of your mom. <laughs> right. And yeah. that's, a, that's kind of what I was hoping. And I, I like to be able to do it because I, I do laugh at myself all the time. My kids laugh at me all the time. And um, not for good reasons or any reason I want them to, but I, that makes me happy to hear that he enjoys that part because I think they're entitled to it. And it, it almost brings it back around to the whole Jim Henson thing and all the different Muppets and us finding our own personalities and who we laugh at and, um, being able to laugh at what we recognize in each one of these characters as a little piece of ourselves. Mm. Oh, and that. that becomes how we grow up. And these are the influences that we have. 
totally agree. Well, Sarah, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. Um, again, in the show notes, I will have a link to your site, but I'll say it now just in case people don't make it to the show notes. It's at Sarah Mazes with an I. So M-A-I-Z. Like Spanish. Like Spanish yes. Corn like you so call it maize. It, it. I didn't want it's to corn. We call it maize. <laughs> Remember that old commercial? I, I interrupted you spelling it. So go ahead. Okay. It's Sarah M-A-I-Z-E-S.com. I got that right, didn't I? Okay. You did. Um, and again, they'll be it'll be in the show notes along with links to your classes and the books and all that kind of good stuff as well. And school visits. I love doing school visits. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll and it's, that stuff's all on your website, right? Like uh, school yes, visits it is. on your site. Yep, yep. Okay. And I'm thinking about hiring Livy out for birthday parties. Oh, now that <laughs> is a great idea. Exploit your children starting early as and much often. As possible. <laughs> Sarah, it's been a delight. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me, Megan. Thanks so much for spending some time with me this week. This has been episode 36 of the Home Hour. If you want to find out more about Sarah and some of the things that we talked about today, including some of the um, stories I talked about at the in the intro, you can just check out the show notes. They will be at thehappiesthome.com slash episode 36. I will be back next week, so we'll see you then.